Good evening, everyone. I want to say how much I appreciate the invitation to be with you all this evening uh, and this morning as well. I greatly appreciate the kind compliments that we had after the, the lesson this morning. We talked about James James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. It is working tonight. All right. We talked about James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and we were understanding our own hearts. We asked the question over again, why do we do what we do? And the answer was, because we want what we want. Why? What is the source of all human behavior? Well, it's because inside we were wanting something. You... If you are feeling distressed, anxious, despair, guilty, or anger, it is likely because there is a situation that you either put yourself into or you were put into due to no fault of your own. But how do you handle that situation? Whatever it might be, how do you think about it? How do you act towards it? How do you speak about your situation says a lot about what is in your heart at the time. If you are desiring... I didn't understand that either. That's rough for a preacher when your phone goes, I didn't understand you. Wow. Even Google doesn't know what I'm talking about. We'll just leave that right there. Okay. That was funny. <laughs> the world doesn't understand what we're talking about. That a heart living for its own desires is one that is ultimately humiliated. Where, as it tells us in James chapter 4, we should have a heart... A heart. Wow, now I'm Scottish. We should have a heart that desires God, desires to please Him. We need to submit to Him. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart sinners, purify your heart, cleanse your hands, purify your heart. We talked all about that in James chapter 4. This evening, we're going to illustrate that. We're going to look at a character study of a man named Asaph from Psalm 73. If you have a copy of the handout, you have that psalm in its entirety in that blue box on the front and back page. And we're going to learn about this man and what he went through. This is a poem that he wrote ultimately to be sung. And at certain points you think, I don't want to sing this song. Like, why, why does God even put this in the Bible? Because of the roller coaster ride that he's about to go, take us on. It says that it's a psalm of Asaph that likely wasn't included in the original, but was added by a scribe later to tell who it is that wrote it. Asaph, in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and elsewhere, we learn about him, that he was a skilled poet and was an inspired writer of the Bible, that he was called a seer or a prophet, so to speak. And God appoint, uh, David appointed him to be in charge of, of all worship that was done in the tabernacle. And then that legacy would be, le be left to his sons. The sons of Asaph were great uh, le worship leaders as well. How Psalm 73 begins is with its conclusion. <clears throat> God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. That's where he's going to end up. 
But oh, is he going to go on a roller coaster to get there? Let's read what he says in verse 2. He says, But as for feet, for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. My feet almost slipped. His thoughts nearly become his actions. And we're going to see later on in verse 15, he's going to say, I haven't told this to anybody, but these are thoughts that are going through his head. It's not just things that we do or things that we say that can get us in trouble. But sometimes when we get on this thought train and it becomes like a spiral and it pulls us down into a pit, that's what we're going to see in Asaph. His thoughts, they haven't become actions yet. And what is this main thought that he's having? Verse 3, his heart is full of envy. He's looking at the wicked and those who are arrogant around him and saying, they have what I don't have and it's not fair. He is an illustration of James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source and of wars and fights among you? This war and fight is internal. It's inside Asaph himself. He is in turmoil because of his passions that are waging war within him. He sees what the arrogant and the wicked have, and he wants it. He wants what they have. In a lot of ways, in this next section, as we read verses 4 through 12, I want you to think about what it is he is thinking about. What is it that's in his heart, and what is it that he is desiring? In, in each verse or verse section, is he desiring pleasure that the wicked people have that he's not getting? Is he envious of the praise of men? Other people say nice things about them, but they don't say nice things about Asaph. Does he craving their power or the stuff that they have? Or the easy life that they have. This, this fake kind of peace. What is it that he's wanting as we go through this section? Let's, so let's start and look at verse 4 and 5. And I'll give a moment for you to think about it. But verse 4 and 5, what is he craving? They have an easy time until they die. And their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. What is it that he's longing for there that the wicked have that he doesn't have? I would say he's craving this easy life, this peace. They have health and I don't. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are taken care of and they're not in trouble like most people. And they're not afflicted like most people. Someone saying... I have cancer, and this wicked person who hates God and is spreading terrible things, he gets to be healthy and I don't. That's what this man is saying. Look, verse 6 through 8. Therefore, pride is their necklace, 
and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock. They speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. What do they have that I don't? Pride is their necklace. And violence covers them like garment. Why would someone be violent to another except to exert dominance? This is them showing their power. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run wild. You look at that, that fraternity house across campus when you're in college and they're having parties and they're doing whatever their imaginations say they want to it and oh, it looks so fun. They have power. They can do whatever they want without any consequences. They mock, they speak maliciously, and arrogantly threaten oppression. They have power over others, and I don't. Keep reading, verse 9. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. I think that comes back up again in verse 11, but notice verse 10. What is he craving in verse 10? Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. Here, I'm a song leader. That's what he was. I am a worship leader. God's people aren't listening to me. Instead, they're listening to the wicked and the arrogant. What's he longing for there? I would argue it's the praise of men. He wants other people to say that he's doing a good job. He wants people to come and listen to him. Verse 11, the wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? I think this again is power. They they want freedom from God. I am my own man. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it my way. And they're seemingly not punished for it. How, is God even looking and seeing what they are doing? Verse 12, look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. What do you see there in verse 12? Well, of course, again, he brings up their easy life. That would be peace. But he's also craving their possessions as well. Envious of all the stuff they have. They increase their wealth, but look at me. Up to this point in the, in the psalm, how do you think Asaph's internal feelings are? Do you think he's stressed out? Would you say he's stressed? What about anxious and worried? Think he's dealing with that? What about depression? Or the biblical word of that for that is despair. Do you think he's despairing? You think there's some woe is me in this? I'm in this pit. How can I get out of it? You think he feels angry? I think he's not only feeling angry at the wicked, I think he's feeling angry at God himself. Why? Why is he feeling those things? Well, it, He says he hasn't acted, and and in verse 15, he's going to say, I haven't told anyone about this. These are just his thoughts. Can your thoughts bring you down? Do you play on them long enough? 
Your thoughts absolutely can bring you down to a place you never wanted to go. And why? It's because of those desires in his heart. He looks at the wicked people and he craves what they have. They have pleasure. They have the praise of men. They have power. They have possessions. They have an easy life. They have peace. What's going on in this man right now? Do wicked people always have easy lives? Well, no. And in fact, just the hyperbole that he's going to use here is pretty wild. Later on, I'd say that his worldview is distorted. The way he is seeing the world is twisted to where it's no longer true. That's where your thoughts can take you. And in this, he's completely focused on himself. Look at me and what I am going through, and look at those people over there, and they've got it so easy, but look at what I'm going through. And it's not fair. His life, the goal of life, the way that he's thinking right now, is for pleasure and for treasure, and he doesn't have it. That's the way Asaph is thinking. And he interprets life through the grid of worldliness. He's not wearing his Jesus-colored glasses where he has a biblical worldview. Instead, he has a worldliness worldview where the goal in life is to have more stuff, to have more power, to have more praise. And when you look at the world that way, who am I but a little squirt with nothing? That's who he sees himself as because he's seeing himself with a worldliness worldview. And this leads him to a state of depression and I would argue self-pity. Do you see self-pity in the words that he's been using so far? This woe is me, look at them, and look how bad I've got it. And if this psalm ended right here, how bad would it be? Pretty bad. It gets worse. Look what he says next. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. And when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. How does he feel right now? You see depression? You see self-pity? He's in a dark place. Do you see any irony in verse 13? Have I kept my heart pure for nothing? Would you describe his heart as a pure heart by what we've read so far in this psalm? He's saying my heart is pure when it's very obvious to the rest of us that it's not. When you think something is true about yourself, but it's not, we call that self-deception. He has deceived himself into thinking he is something when he is nothing. He thinks, I have kept myself pure, I've gone to church, I'm doing all of these right things, but in his heart, there's poison, there's bitterness, because he's desiring stuff that other people have. And how do you think he sees God right now? If you say, what do you think of God? Well, 
God is unjustly punishing him. Look at how bad my life is right now and compared to all of these wicked people and how great their lives are. God's not fair to me. I think of the couple who struggled for years with fertility issues, perhaps suffered miscarriages, when so many wicked people in the world are terrible parents, either neglected, neglectful, abusive, or just dispose of them before they're born through abortion. Why do they get to have kids and we can't? That couple says. Or why do I have all these health problems when people in the world get to live their selfish lives openly opposing God? Why is my life so hard when they have it so easy? God is unfair. And if you had to ask what he thinks of God, in this moment, he would say that God is not good. Remember where this, this psalm started, verse 1? That God is indeed good to Israel? But that's not where his heart is. Do you see this roller coaster that he's on? His conclusion at this point is, I can't understand this. When I try to understand it, it seems hopeless. Now, would I ask you to open your songbooks and let's turn to Psalm 73 and, and sing this song. Did my purify my heart for nothing? You know, that just doesn't make for a quality song, you think, right? That would be a rough song to sing. And if the psalm ended right here, it'd be rough. But what we see, we see him going through the steps of James 4 that we talked about this morning. Again, before we move on to, to later on the psalm, I think this is an important point to make. You realize his thoughts had not yet turned to speech, and he sees the situation as hopeless. He hasn't told anyone about his doubts, about his struggles. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, that he's kept them to himself? I would argue that it's both, and it depends on who you talk to. If you express your doubts about your faith in God and you go to other people who are also, say, on the same maturity level that you are, people that are also struggling, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to do what Asaph did. He, he says right here in the text, if I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. I'm a song leader. Like, I'm a worship leader, and if I'm going around talking about my doubts, what's that going to do to other people? Well, it's going to drag them down with me. So you've got to be careful who you talk to. But also, think of people that I know and love dearly who come to us and say, for the past three years, we've been pretending. We haven't believed in God for years. They struggled in secret and in silence and never told us anything about it. They never sought counsel. They never asked for help. And then you have a, a Romans 1 situation where you fall into sin and your foolish heart is darkened 
And when it's that point, it gets so hard to bring you back. This morning, I asked the elders to stand up at the end, and uh, I'm going to ask them to do that again at the end of this lesson. If you have fears and doubts and anxiety or depression or struggling with any of this stuff, talk to someone. Talk to someone who can speak God's word into you. Because Jesus is the one who specializes in changing hearts. It's not me, it's not the elders, and it's definitely not anybody weaker than you. You find someone who you know and trust, who who knows the word of God, that can turn to a passage that will help you through the struggles that you are having. That's what you need to do. If he had told his peers, he could have brought them down but you need to seek counsel. When you struggle with things, God blesses us. Ephesians 4 verse 4, it talks about that God gives us these gifts. He gives us apostles and evangelists and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The elders that we have, the evangelists that we have, the people who are skilled in the word of God, those are God's gift to you to help you and to equip you for the fight that's ahead of you. Satan's going to try, try to take you down. And look at what the turning point is for this man. He said, I tried to understand all of this, but my attempt to understand of this was hopeless. Until. Notice the transition in this psalm. And this is where this psalm becomes awesome. Verse 13. Verse 17, until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from the dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. Boy, it feels like Asaph is waking up out of a dream. He felt hopeless until he went into God's sanctuary. He went to worship. He was with God's people. And there they would have spoken God's word to him. They would have sung psalms of praise to God. And then it clicks. He changes his worldview from being all about worldliness to what we're going to see in the rest of the psalm. He sees it from a biblical worldview standpoint. He understands by listening to God's word what's going to happen to the wicked. This morning, when we were talking about James chapter 4, what is the result of sin? Always, always, always. It's going to leave you in a state of anxiety, depression, anger, and guilty. Eventually, you don't feel guilty anymore. Your, your, your heart becomes so hard. You don't even feel guilty anymore. But what happens when you exalt yourself? The ultimate end, even in in this life or in the next, is that you will be humiliated. That's his point here. The end of the wicked is that they will be humiliated by God himself. God will take care of them. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end. This individual here is rescued by drawing near to God. Like it says in James chapter 4. Specifically, going to worship, reading and listening to God's word being read to him, singing psalms, 
the, the, the spiritual songs that they would sing, and through prayers. He draws near to God. He listens to God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, we quoted this morning, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut the divisions of your soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And what he does here is he starts to get the big picture. A lot of the times when we feel sad and depressed, and I'll tell you about one time in my life, I was in college. I'm the oldest of four kids. Mara's the youngest. I've got a a brother that's two years younger than me. Uh, That's Kyle. Leah is about three and a half years younger than me. Mara's right at six years younger than me. There was one night I was sitting in my basement, and it seemed like everyone in my life had a date that night but me. All three of my siblings out on dates. My best friend, who's the biggest nerd in the world, had a date. My parents were busy. All of my friends were busy. And I sat in my bedroom, wallowing in self-pity. And boy, my brain turned to places that it just shouldn't have never gone. I'm so incredibly blessed that God didn't... I didn't take that any further than that, but... I remember that night vividly. But you know, back, I look back at it now, just how silly and stupid that was. It was just ridiculous. I look at my life now, got a beautiful wife and two beautiful kids. Why did I ever worry about what when am I going to get a date? When am I going to have a girlfriend? I want to get married. All of these things. You 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 take a step back and What he does here is he takes a step back and understands the big picture. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things, earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. This is exactly how James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 describe it. What he goes through, the process he goes through, is what we talked about this morning. I'm going to read James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 again. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. These are the steps that Asaph takes. He goes to worship. He understands the big picture. He humbles himself. And what you're going to see after this is someone who actually does have a pure heart. He's going to come out of this on, on the other end with a heart that we would want to have. Read verse 21 21 and 22. Notice this process that he's going to undergo. He says, When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. That word stupid was a word that we weren't allowed to say when I was a kid. That was a bad word in our house. 
but it still feels just a little bit naughty to say it, you know. But he's saying, I was an idiot. When I was so full of bitterness, you know what bitterness is? Bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. What, is it, what good does bitterness do you? It's stupid. That's what he says. When I was so bitter, I was only wounding myself. My innermost being was wounded. I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. What do we call it when we go to God and say, God, what I just did was stupid and I'm sorry? What do we call that? We call that confession. What he does here is he humbles himself before God and confesses his unrighteous desires. He tells God about what, who he was in that moment, and he's making a change of heart. He lets go of those idols that he had built up in his heart, those selfish desires that he was hanging on to. And boy, how does this change? How this turns? This was the, our, our scripture reading this evening. Yet, I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have? in heaven but you. And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. If that sounds familiar, that's song number 29 in our songbook, Rock of My Heart. It comes directly out of this psalm at the end, talking about how my feet almost slipped, and when my heart was bitter against you, that's this psalm. But the conclusion here, his, his entire character, his entire transform, is just transformed. How is he so transformed? This is really, really important. His, this transformation is characterized not without a change of circumstance. What's his life like? You think he's still going to be punished every morning? You think he's still afflicted on all sides? You think the wicked people are still going to have their stuff and he's not going to have his stuff? His surroundings, his circumstances, if you have cancer, you're still going to have cancer. If you have this situation looming over your head, that situation's not going to go away just because you change your heart. Your circumstance stays the same, but your outlook is completely different. He has a change in his focus, a change in his desire. He went from desiring what the wicked people have to a desire for God. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. In other words, he just changes his thinking. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Change your heart. Change your outlook. 
change everything. How do you do that, Paul? Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You change your outlook, you change your thinking. And what's the result now? His life is now full of joy, peace, and satisfaction in the Lord. You bring up this slide again, and you think about where is he now? Well, he went from feeling distressed and anxious and depressed and angry to now, God is my portion forever. You think of Philippians chapter 4. When you let God have everything, you are anxious for nothing. And through everything, by prayer and supplication, you let your request be made known to God. And that peace that doesn't make any sense to anybody else in the world, that peace that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts. How do you get that peace? It's through this process that we've been talking about in James chapter 4 and in Psalm 73. So we finish the psalm. It says, Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. Self was his focus, but now God is his focus. He is living no longer for himself, but for for God. And now he interprets life through a desire to please God. And if you had to ask him, right now, what do you think of God? Well, he says it right here. God's presence is my good. His conclusion is that God is good. Even though he still doesn't have the stuff that the wicked people have. He would conclude that God is good. And what changed? He went to worship. And he heard God's word, and he drew near to God, and it changed everything. He has a bigger picture on life. And you conclude with a place where this psalm began. Psalm 73, verse 1 says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. On your handout this morning, you had uh, in a box, because I had extra space on the page, eight questions that you can ask yourself that when you are in a situation you don't know how to handle it, perhaps ask these questions to yourself. Just first, take a step back and assess the situation. What am I going through right now? How am I responding? What is my behavior or those fruit problems? How have I responded to this traffic? How have I responded to this diagnosis? How am I responding to this money problem? Whatever it is, what is my behavior? Am I... Is my heart, and in that, what am I wanting? How am I responding? Is it showing that I desire to please God, or am I wanting those selfish things? And what are the possible consequences of those actions? If I stay down this road, and if I keep acting this way towards my spouse or towards my coworkers, what is the outcome going to be? And what should I be wanting? If I'm not desiring something that God wants me to desire, I need to change 
that? And, and what does the Bible say about my situation? And my response going to God's Word is always the answer. And what are the consequences both now and in eternity if I please the Lord, if I change these actions? And then finally, what should I do right now? I, I find those questions to be helpful in a moment when you are feeling overwhelmed. In a moment, we're going to sing number 29, Rock of My Heart. And uh, before we do that, again, if, if there's something going on in your life right now where you are struggling, if you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian. That's step number one. Submit to God and be immersed in baptism. That's when He promises for you to have help. And then not only do you get the Lord and everything that promises, you also get a family. People who are here to help you through it. And again, if we have visitors here, I want them to know who the elders are. So if elders, if you don't mind, stand back up one, one last time to today. These are the men of the congregation here who is deemed as someone who you can talk to. Someone who you can go to with the problems that you are facing in your life and they are capable of speaking God's word into you. There's a, a need that you have. We ask you to come to the front now as we stand and as we sing the song. Selected. <clears throat>